our board members mentioned that we need to comply with open meetings law. Do we? Well, that's an easy question. No, you probably don't. So if you're a nonprofit in Nevada, you are not an agency of the state, which means that you don't need to comply with open meetings law, which is specifically for state organizations. So if you are the school district, you are paid, if you're UNLV, those kinds of organizations need to do open meetings law, but nonprofits don't qualify. If you want to read more, it's um, in NRS chapter 241. We'll link that in the show notes. But the good news is, nope, you can tell that board member no. Woohoo! That's your celebration <laughs> Yay, for the one day. Thing one thing we do. don't have to do. <laughs> You're off the hook. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit, with your host, Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. I'm here with my co-host, Andy Shirk, and this is a production of Anne, the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits. Check them out if you haven't already. Great resource with lots of information. Um, Again, we are so happy to have you with us. We love uh, attempting at least to answer your questions, and we want to keep hearing from you. So please don't forget to uh, send us your questions. Go to nonprofiteverything.com or just poke Andy and I when you see us, and we'll do our best to make sure your question's included. Today's episode is sponsored by Brenda J. Stout CPA, a full-service accounting firm specializing in nonprofit tax compliance and IRS problem resolution. Find out more at brendastoutcpa.com or check the Nonprofit Everything show notes for contact information. Thank you, Brenda J. Stout CPA. Thank you, Brenda. Okay, Stacey, this, this might be the longest question that we've ever received. Ooh. And um, yeah, it's got a lot of cool context in it, so it's probably good that we read the whole thing. So okay, bear great. with us. This might take a little while. Oh, boy. During my most recent interviews with local nonprofit organizations, they asked why my last two positions were relatively short periods of employment. My current role is at a year, and the previous role was one and a half years. My current role is a great match for my skills and interests. It's only ending because I've relocated to a warmer client with my husband who has a chronic health condition. However, my previous role was a terrible experience. The executive director regularly no-showed to meetings with grantors and board members, openly fought with the board in front of staff, would go for weeks without showing up at the office and not tell staff what was happening, and had no previous nonprofit or management experience. Also, the board was not very competent or supportive. I stuck it out as long as I could. Most reasons for leaving were justified. Other than the most recent roles, I've solid, longer, tenured jobs lasting from five to six years. I'm just 32 years old, and I've worked since I was 16. I hadn't anticipated this being an issue, but since both interviews resulted in no offer, I'm starting to grow concerned. My question is, how can I have an honest conversation with potential employers that will make it clear I'm not a job hopper, while also being mindful to speak positively about previous employers, even when the experience sucked? Wow. Well, that one, I, you know, I'm sitting here just kind of cringing at that description of that job environment, right? Mm -hmm. That work environment. Wow. That sounds like a train wreck. And sadly, I'm sure some of our listeners can relate because there are those kinds of leadership, right? Or lack thereof in organizations. Um, Wow. Well, so I'm a big believer that you sometimes have to address the elephant in the room before they ask you. So I'm a believer that you kind of, you, you say, you know, here's what I have done. And, and you sort of really share the, the longer tenure jobs and say, 
And then, you know, just to bring some context to the other two positions, one was, you know, a move because of my husband's health situation. Um, and the other, to be quite frank, it just was not a good fit. Now, you're not going to sit there and air all the dirty laundry of that organization because that's just not professional, even though you may really want to. But it wasn't a good fit. It was a bit of a toxic work environment. I think you can say a something <laughs> a bit. Sounds just horrible. A slight. It was a train wreck. But <laughs> but, you know, but I mean, I kind of I feel like you, you just have to kind of beat them to the punch, because I think if you don't address it and that question looms, then it comes back or they have they fill in like their own communication about why you might have left. Oh, she's young. And sadly, the younger you are, I think this is more against you. I, I mean, it depends. Like if you there's this pattern, right? They say, oh, she's one of those young people who, <laughs> right, can't, doesn't stick around. And yet you have these job experiences on your on your resume that were longer tenured. So I really think pointing that out and then just saying, you know, the last job, you know, being just direct about it, but without going down that rabbit hole of telling them that whole list that you just read off to us. Yeah, I think you're exactly right about being proactive about it. I think, I mean, I've been lucky enough to be in a position of hiring people for a while. So I get to hire people. And, and if you've never been in that position, it's a totally different mindset. So when you're a candidate, before you get into the position of hiring people, when you're just a candidate, you're not really sure what, you know, you want to put yourself in the best light. You want to be friendly. You get lots of advice. But at the end of the day, the person that you're talking to really wants you to be the right person yes. for the job. They would love to have you walk in and be like, that's the person we want. Let's stop looking. We can get somebody that we want to have. Yeah. So, so the, the best things you can do is figure out before you walk in the door, like what that person's looking for. Um, and then, yeah, be be honest about if there are other situations that like didn't work out. Say, yeah, that just wasn't the opportunity for me or or yeah, I, I felt I could do more better work someplace else. You know, you don't yes. you don't have to make and, and the worst case scenario would be to go into any of this detail. Oh, like because yeah. the last thing, you know, as as your future boss, the right. last thing I want to know is that you are somebody who's going to walk into my office and complain about stuff all the time and <laughs> whine and be like, oh, poor me. This right. was such a bad situation. And I tried to handle it so well, like. I don't want as an as an, as your boss. I don't care. Right. I don't want that. I want you to do your job. Totally. I want you to do your job really well. And I want to like when I see you in the hallway. I want to remember like, oh yeah, that person works for me. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> right? Well, and you don't want. I mean, because the other thing here that would be going through my mind if I were the one hiring is I would wonder, oh God, what if our organization? No organization's perfect. We have our bumps. And if you sat there and went through this list. And then I would think, okay, when you go to hire, go get hired for your next job, when you leave here, what are you saying about us? Like, it's just not yeah. good. I don't know that I, when I'm looking at people to, to hire, I don't know that job tenure is high on my list. So if you've been someplace for a year and a half, I'm like, okay, so that's, that's a year and a half. That's a long time. Um, 18 months could be a mm. long time. This is not, it's not 1965 where you have a pension plan and, if you stay there for right for you stay there for an extra seven years, you're going to get another fifty thousand dollars into your retirement account. It's like employers, employers aren't looking for long term people necessarily. They're looking for people that can get the job done. I, I think that I mean I don't know. That'd be a great question for an HR person, but I think the average tenure for like an actual professional nonprofit person might be around eighteen months. It is. I I will tell you though, I am the polar opposite of you. I. It, I do take that into consideration. And I have been, I have worked with organizations that I've helped them with their hiring. And it bothers me. I don't mind a few of those, like over a long career trajectory. I don't mind a few short stints. I think we've all probably had them. When it is consistent, 
I'm sitting here thinking as an employer, how much time and money I'm spending to get you trained. And it's like, oh, wow, 18 months. I mean, that is like a flash. So unless you really can share with me compelling reasons um, why that continues to happen, and I still think I would kind of hold it against a person. So it's probably a personal preference, and I am old school in it. It just bought, but look at me, right? Like, whatever. I've had my business 13 years. Before that, I worked somewhere almost seven years. I mean, so I'm clearly like the that stable person that's probably the antithesis of today's day and age. It still bugs me, though. Like, I want to see at least three years. Like, can I get three years out of somebody? Yeah, three that years I is hire? so long. You think so? Oh, my God. <laughs> three gosh. years is forever. I don't know. I mean, well, so, so some of the ways you can mitigate it, too. So they're if like we said this a couple of weeks ago or a few podcasts ago that call checking references is a skill that any hiring manager needs to be really, really good at. So one of the ways that you can proactively fix that is figure out who your references are. That's so, true. so you don't have to tell the person, you know, if they're curious, like why did they only stay there for a year and a half? And you can say, Oh, it just, the situation just wasn't, wasn't working out for me or whatever positive way you can spin on it. Right. Make sure that there's somebody on your reference that worked with you at that organization. Maybe you supervised them or maybe they supervised you or Maybe there was a board member that felt the same way you do, so that when they call that person for a reference, that person could go, oh my God, this place is an absolute train wreck. <laughs> yes. I'm shocked she lasted 18 yes. months, like because yes. any sane person wouldn't have lasted more than two weeks, and she's totally stuck it out, and she's a hard worker, and all the positive things about like why 18 months was a really big deal for that particular job. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to hear you say it because I I do think being proactive, and I also think, you know, back to, you know, this is sort of taking the question a little further, but... There is a role when you're getting your references lined up, coach your references, Oh yeah, right? Because it's amazing how many people don't do that. And the references are dumbfounded or don't have the job description of what you're going for or don't remember the history. <laughs> like who? Who was right? that? Exactly. Say the name again. Exactly. So I'm like, <laughs> it's a great opportunity to say, hey, here's some of the things I think might come up. And here's what I would, you know, here's what I would love if you can just speak to that or sort of share whatever. I mean, it's just kind of like you want your references saying the stuff you can't say. Yeah. Yeah. And and all the research that you did on the company before deciding to, to apply there, you should up, tell your references all of the cool things. Like what they really need help with is this. Right. So I want you to talk about when I did this. Yes. And most references, I mean, if you're, if you're a good person and you ought to be hired, yeah. you know, they're going to do that for you. If you're not yeah. a good person and you shouldn't be hired, <laughs> like this, this trick yeah. will not work for you. No, it won't at all. <laughs> right. So now I have a question kind of piggybacking off this because I have reviewed resumes before that people have had a lot of job changes and they literally have, have put on the resume a, a sentence or a quick descriptor of why they transitioned. Like this was upward mobility. This is when my, my spouse moved or whatever. Do you think that from your opinion, is that a good or a bad thing? Cause does it draw attention more to the issue or does it help rectify any concerns that might be in someone, a reviewer's mind? Um, I don't know. I know some applications say that. So like, it'll say, list your last five jobs or some ridiculous number that takes you into the 1960s or something. And then it would say reason for leaving. And you have like four inches right. <laughs> to right. cram right. in like the reason that you left. And, and the ones that you commonly see are no opportunity for advancement. Um, I moved. I mean, yeah, I think you, you could be honest without 
without signaling that you're a problem, you're a potential future problem employer. Yeah. And I mean, I've, so I personally, when I've gotten those have appreciated it because it's helped me, someone with my mentality, who's obviously different than yours, help me feel a little more comfortable when I read through the reasoning. It all makes sense. And I can understand why those changes may have happened fairly frequently. Um, So it helps kind of answer that question for me, whereas, and I might then move them to an interview stage, whereas if they didn't do that, it could literally just be, once again, I look at it and say, oh my gosh, they're a job hopper. They go in the no pile. So it's something just more to consider the person who asked the question and think about some of that stuff. Yeah, I think you're right. And and, and nowadays, nowadays, (laughs) how old am I when I say nowadays? Oh my gosh, (laughs) nowadays. Um, you have back a million years ago, you had one opportunity. So you had the application form. And if you were lucky, they wanted you to submit a resume that you typed up. And the resume was kind of your, the only chance you got to say something that wasn't very specific on the application. Now you've got your LinkedIn page, your Facebook page, a blog, a podcast, God forbid, (laughs) right? There's all kinds of opportunities for you to to, to show yourself as a, is a different kind of person than what shows up on one or two pieces of paper, especially after you get to that interview stage, getting past the, the, you know, the HR drone apologies to all yes. HR drones when yes. I say that, but past the person who gets you know, nowadays four I said it again, nowadays, um, the person that gets 400 applications for a single position and their job is to sort of sort it into piles because they can't bring the hiring manager, 400 pieces of paper. They have to say, I'll give you 10 to look at. So, so that's the first hurdle to get past. Um, it might be interesting to ask somebody who's in that position, like, you know, what are they, what's their sort criteria? Mm-hmm. Do they, do they look at a bunch of short jobs as being, as being a challenge and how can you get around that? I also think a cover letter, so many times um, they, there's not a requirement of a cover letter. And yet for me, when someone goes above and beyond and sends me a cover letter uh, that kind of fills in some of the holes that you can't you know, understand in the resume. I I love it. Or when they take the initiative to say, here's why I would be a good fit. And I realize that a lot of times when you're looking for a job, you're just sort of mass sending out, you know, your resume. So that's not always ideal. But if there's positions, you do that. Well, right. right. (laughs) But I'm like, I love cover letters because I just go, God, that person took the initiative. And I can also see how they are as a communicator. Um, So if you're not great at written communication, make sure someone edits it. Yeah. That we got way deep in this that question, we did. didn't we? We're, we're way beyond what, <laughs> we're what way we're asked. Beyond. But, but it's a, I mean, it's a good question, and it's it come up a bunch of times. Is like, how do you, like, I'm, I was just recommending to somebody the other day, they wanted to get a job in nonprofits. They'd never done nonprofit stuff before. They didn't know a whole lot about what nonprofits were around, and they didn't know where they wanted to land. Mm-hmm. And my advice was just find some place to volunteer. Like, exactly. go in and volunteer for them. And if you're, like, the most amazing volunteer ever, that's a really good way to get hired by that place because they're like, oh, like they're a hard worker. They show up on time. They do what they're told. I can work with this person. They've been a volunteer here. You're already at the top of the pile. You're past the HR person. You're much nicer than me. I oftentimes start with run for the hills. All right, Stacey, what's the, di- this is like a trivia question. <laughs> oh, Ready? I'm holding on. What's the difference between overhead and operating costs? Well, so it's interesting because I think a lot of people in the nonprofit sector kind of combine those into one and yet they're different, right? So when you think of operating, it's really like the, the materials, the labor, right? Staff time, if there's machines used and what you do, whatever that might be, right? But your materials, your supplies used to kind of deliver the service, right? Or offer the program you, you 
um, your offering. And overhead is kind of those more intangible. So it's not related to those things. Um, it's more like static, you know, like I always call it static costs. So thinking a little bit about, um, you know, if you have, you know, like the rent that you pay, right, on your building, um, you know, some of the facility costs, if there's insurance, those types of things that are just to run the business, but that aren't directly related to the the, the output. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think the challenge with this question is that both of these are um, for-profit terms. Yes. Um, So overhead and operating costs, if you you type those into Google, if you type those, they're going to take you to examples that include like making widgets in a factory. Exactly. Which just doesn't apply to nonprofits at all. So, so if we can, if I can answer a different question, do you think that's okay? Oh, well, hey, Um, ad lib. Like, so the, (laughs) the, like... Overhead and operating, where where you will see an analog in the nonprofit world um, is on your statement of functional expenses, where you have to take your um, you have to take all of the expenses that you've you've made as a nonprofit, and then you're going to divide them into buckets. And the three big buckets are the program bucket, the fundraising bucket, and the management and general bucket. Right. So those are the three big buckets. Um, in, in this example, um, the overhead would be the management and general bucket and the fundraising bucket. So th- those two buckets would be kind of like what you would consider overhead in a, in a for-profit. Um, operating costs are, are another, it's another for-profit term that the closest analog in a nonprofit would be if you look at your cash flow statement. Your cash flow statement is broken into three chunks. Um, one of them is financing one of them is operations, and one of them is investments. So the operations one, that section of your cash flow statement is what they would also consider operating costs. And that's basically all of the money it takes to do what you're doing, but not all of the money that you're making off your investments and not all of the money that you're paying to pay for stuff over a long period of time, like your building or like if you've got a line of credit or something like that. So it's really the the things that are using to to actually do your program. Well, and I think the distinction you make is is a good one and an important one because I think overhead and operating terms are oftentimes used in the boardroom. And so you have to, as staff, if you are the ones in that boardroom, understand what board members are talking about when they're talking, referring to overhead operating. There's also a lot of funders, candidly, that use that in their grant, you know, in their RFPs and such um, that will use language like that. So understanding the transferability between, you know, for-profit and nonprofit and how those relate yeah. um, and, and how you just work it down is great. Yeah. And I, I mean, as a, as a former CFO, if somebody says something like, can you tell me your operating costs? Uh, my first response would be, can you tell me what you mean by that? Because I'm going to point you to my cash flow statement, which you're holding right now, but that's probably not what you meant. Are yeah. you talking about uh, management and general expenses? Or right. Are you talking about the, the, when sometimes when you're talking about nonprofit overhead, you're talking about the the fundraising and administrative right. piece versus the program piece. You're talking about like that overhead rate that, that thankfully I don't hear quite as much about anymore, yes, but it still exists. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just just querying down to say like because because a lot of these people again we, we beg on board members a lot, but a lot of times board members come in and they think they know a lot of stuff, but they don't actually know a lot of stuff about nonprofits, right. and so they come in with their their <laughs> vast knowledge that is sometimes totally not applicable to what you are doing, and so you know it's okay to play dumb and go so I can you explain what you mean by that? <laughs> well, well, I'm thinking when you use that as an example, someone says, oh, tell me about you know your operating cost, and you you responded with well, what do you mean by that? I mean, I think you would 
someone would be dumbfounded. They wouldn't even know how to answer that. They'd <laughs> right, be like, well, like, you're our CFO and you're asking. I think that could be a risk though. Like, I get what you're saying. You're trying to like, you know, you're trying to sit there and, and really get them to clarify, but it's also like, they don't even know what they don't know. So it's yeah, a good. I, I, I see your point. I think, I mean, you as, if you're a CFO and you're listening to this, like you have to cultivate that relationship yeah. between your board and yourself so that so that they don't take it the wrong way. Yes. Like either they don't think this either person they think doesn't you're know a loser, right? right? This person doesn't know Incompetent. what they're talking about. Yes. Instead of like, I actually know a lot more than you do about this. <laughs> Which is why I, I asked you I that. I need you to rephrase your question yes. so that I can answer it, right? <laughs> Okay, Stacy. so many grant RFPs seem to be repetitious with just slight variations from what other funders send out. Have you seen any examples of collaboration among funders to help streamline RFP processes and not put nonprofits through all of this repetitive and time-consuming work? Yes. So, (laughs) yes, I know. Shocking, (laughs) right? Well, believe it or not, someone um, who works in the nonprofit sector and is a good friend of mine actually shared an example with me that I love. And so we'll send a, we'll put a link in the show notes, but in, in theory, what they basically said in sort of their email with the RFP link was, listen, feel free to share with us a proposal you've sent to another funder, as long as like, it kind of applies to us. And it went on in there and it said, you know, we understand our approach is really trust-based philanthropy and this this whole concept of like grantee-centric funding where we are not going to put you through 10 more hoops that you're always going through because you need to be spending your time on your mission work and not on these stupid, ridiculous proposals that we're asking you to comply with. So basically it was the coolest thing. So I'll send the, I'll send the email verbiage that they used as well as the link because anybody who's listening, who may be in that role to design, you know, a grant process or grant applications, please, please like take, you know, I, I would implore you to, to look at this because I think we need to really start moving toward it. Other communities have done, I think a better job than ours has and, and other states have about having even a one central grant RFP that literally a bunch of funders come together and say, we all agree that these questions would give us what we need. So we'll just have this sort of one format that once someone fills it out, any of us, it kind of is in the shared drive where any of us can access it. Um, So I think there's some cool stuff going on out there with it. And I would love to see uh, Nevada move toward that. That's cool. Why do you think, why do you think people aren't going that direction? I mean, cause there's one funder and I'll, I'll, it's almost like you need to go to a specific phone booth and dial a secret number and then a door opens up in the back of the phone booth and then you can go in and leave a message on a post-it note and then they might get back to you. Like that's, that's how you get to them. Um, those of you who may actually know who I'm talking about, cause it's a lot like that, but why do you think, you know, what, what's the, what is the desire of a funder to make it arcane or difficult to, to, get that first application. I don't think it's like they're trying to intentionally be difficult. I think there's a couple of things happening. Sometimes they've never actually been, they've never worked at a nonprofit, so they don't have that perspective, right? So they've come from some other line of work, or this is just an extra job that's gone gotten thrown on their plate. Oh, we're going to add community relations or, you know, CSR stuff to your plate. And they never have even been trained. So I think there's a piece of it that's happening with that. Um, And I also think it's sometimes just depending on the size of the company, right? Sometimes there is just layer after layer of people who just want to complicate it. And before you know it, you've got this process. Um, 
And it's sort of like just not listening. Like, I, I, I feel like it's a lack of awareness. Like, what's going on? If you look at any articles out there, there's more talk about how we create sort of this more partnership kind of relationship before, but, you know, not this dictatorial or hierarchical kind of structure. And I think anyone who starts to get involved in funders forums or even any kind of research would realize they probably have an antiquated process. Yeah, that reminds me, I've probably told this story before, but one of the, one of my favorite things that actually got me into the CSR space was I had received a grant request or a grant application from a funder. And it was an Excel spreadsheet that had probably, I don't know, like nine or 10 different worksheets. So it was one big thing in the little tabs at the bottom. There are about nine of them. And they were, one of them was about the program area. One was about salaries. One was about a different thing. One was about a different, so each tab had like a theme. And then it rolled all the way up to the front page that was supposed to be a summary of all of it. None of the cells worked. (gasps) So none of the formulas actually rolled to that first page. So I, I probably spent, oh, I don't know, maybe two or three days troubleshooting their spreadsheet to make it so that they're, so that when we turned it in, the summary was actually correct, that it was actually right. Um, and, and, you know, of course, one of the things that they're asking for is they're curious about like overhead, like how much, how much time are we going to spend on administrative stuff for yeah. this grant? And it's like, well, I just spent two days fixing yeah. your thing <laughs> and you probably don't want to pay me for that, do you? So it was like this, this disconnect and you wonder like it did. Has nobody reached back out to the funder and said, hey, by the way, your spreadsheet's broken? Or are they not even looking at it? Because if everybody else is turning in the same thing without checking it the way I did, they're getting a bunch of garbage information. Are they making their decisions based on garbage? Which is so nerve-wracking. so frustrating. Well, and I wish there was more of a process. You think about it, so many funders are asking nonprofits, what's your evaluation? You know, and what, what are your metrics? And how do you measure success? And all of those things. And I would love for funders to start to kind of say, can we learn from you about what makes this process difficult for you. Like, will you share with us? Cause we are. And so this whole kind of idea about trust-based philanthropy and this kind of wave of, of it being grantee centered, I think in some communities across the country are, is really taking that approach saying we can learn from you just as much as hopefully we can impart wisdom back. So like, let's make this a reciprocal relationship. So fingers crossed. I hope someone's listening or those of you who are listening can sort of magically send this podcast link to some of your funders who are difficult. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great idea. Well, thank you. You have made it to the end successfully of another episode of Nonprofit Everything. Um, For Stacy, I'm Andy Schurich. Um, Thank you so much for listening. Please check out the Anne webpage. See, there's a bunch of stuff coming up in the next couple of months. Um, Please check that out and see if there's something that interests you. And uh, with that, we will see you in a couple of weeks. (music) 